Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, IndyCar fans. This is Nathan Brown, your motorsports insider with the Indianapolis Star, here with IndyCar uh, driver and Meyer Shank Racing's Jack Harvey for another edition of IndyCar Weekly. Before we get started, um, I want to let you guys know we have another segment after Jack and I finish up here on the end of today's episode where I speak with Michelle Martinelli of USA Today Sports and For the Win. Um, talk to her about her new podcast that um, debuted uh, its third season last month. It's called The Sneak. It's on the disappearance of Mario Rossi, um, a NASCAR crew chief from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Has a really interesting backstory um, on how he disappeared seemingly out of thin air uh, and her crew's attempts to try to uncover more uh, about his disappearance. So to hear more about that, stay tuned for the end of this episode. But uh, until now, Jack and I will uh, get going, breaking down everything that went on this past weekend at Texas Motor Speedway. And it was a sure a busy one. Jack, uh, how are you doing from those uh, pair of races? And what was it? 675 miles you guys ran over the course of about 24 hours? I'm not sure if that's exactly how many miles we ran, uh, but I think that's how many miles were intended to be that's run. That's true. So, um, that is true. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a good weekend, mate. And, you know, in so many ways, the schedule was very unusual. Uh, and then the rain that came, uh, I made lots of friends in race one, if anyone caught that. Uh, and then our race two was, uh, you know, so much promise and potential with just a, you know, super unfortunate uh, mechanical failure but um yeah man, i thought it was a you know really good weekend uh you know nice to get the first oval ticked off the box there um but yeah man, all, all good um before we get into all that as you mentioned uh weird texas weather um weird schedule double header on an oval which we don't see too often in a, a typical indycar calendar wanted to touch on really quickly um, Bobby Unser, the three-time Indy 500 champion who sadly passed away uh, late Sunday evening at his home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, Bobby became the first uh, Indy 500 champion to win the race in three separate decades. Um, and is only uh, it's only been matched once since then by Rick Mears, um, the one who's one of the three, four-time champions we have of this race. Bobby, of course, is uh, the brother of um, Al Unser Sr. and the uncle to Al Unser Jr., who also won the race twice. Um, Just a really incredible member of uh, one of IndyCar's great racing families. Um, It was was sad to see the news um, that broke on Monday, but 
when someone, something like this happens, um, I guess maybe the, the bright side of it is you get to see and see some really cool, probably photos, uh, and learn some really cool stories, um, about a legend of a sport. Um, and I guess that was maybe the, the thing that I'll remember Monday most, um, Jack and I were, we were talking off pod. I know you didn't necessarily have a chance to meet Bobby, um, during your last couple of years racing in IndyCar, but, um, what have you learned or heard about him either from, you know, talking to, to folks in the series now that knew him or, um, you know, learning anything about him as you were coming up through the, the racing ranks. That the, the name itself, you know, that as a racing family, but what they've all achieved as individuals is what we all aspire to try and achieve. Um, very sad that I never got the opportunity to meet him, but I think I saw Jimmy Johnson tweet this and I actually totally agreed with him. The level of outpour from the community that, you know, the nice comments, you know, the, the amount of people who respected him. I mean, I respected him just from his racing achievements without knowing him as a person, but all the amazing stories that have come out, just show you what a incredibly kind guy he was you know what a competitor he was and you know maybe we flashed the term around a little too much now but he is the epitome of a, a racing legend you know his his achievements you know the legacy and how people still talk about him I mean that that's what we all hope for I think um you know so that was for sure you know very sad news um naturally our you know thoughts and prayers are going to be with his his family but also you know you would just want his family to know that his racing community are right with them very true um i i can't remember who i heard either say or write this on monday um but it really stuck stuck with me um you know bobby unser uh, <laughs> amazingly won his uh, last Indy 500 he ran in in 1981 actually finished finished in the last place in his first Indy 500 in 1963. So a pretty incredible rise through the ranks um, in those, what, uh, 18, 19 years or so. Um, but the thing that stood out to me in particular on Monday was um, about how folks talked about how he had almost like three careers. His first one was as um, a legendary driver and he joined the broadcast ranks at NBC and, uh, and then ABC um, working and covering the 500 there in the years that followed his racing retirement. Uh, and then even after that, over these last, I don't know, probably decade or more has been an incredible ambassador to the sport. He obviously, um, lived in New Mexico, um, full-time. That was his home. Uh, I think they even have a museum for the Unser family. And from what I've heard, his own home is almost like a museum to all of his accomplishments. Um, but he would always make time to come back for the 500, uh, and always made time to chat up, you know, whether it was just race fans at an autograph session or taking photos with them. It was, Pretty incredible. The the folks um, on my timeline, you know, when we posted the the story about his passing, that uh, you know posted their own 
you know, random run of the mill photos with Bobby Unser. And you, you wouldn't probably come across, um, maybe I guess you would nowadays just with how popular the selfie is, but even five, 10 years ago, um, how many fans had their own Bobby Unser memory or their own Bobby Unser photo. I just thought that was really cool. Um, and, and someone who in this racing community certainly will be missed in that aspect of just being, as you said, the, the epitome of, of what this sport is about both on the track and, and off the track. Um, so now as we transition a little bit into, uh, the weekend that was at Texas motor speedway, you mentioned it was, uh, it was chaotic. It was obviously set up to be uh, a quick and fast weekend as it was. Um, maybe a little bit similar to last year's that was a, a one-day show where you guys flew in, practiced, qualified, raced, and flew out the same day. Uh, but this was supposed to be a, a, a weekend where you guys practiced and qualified and raced on Saturday and then raced again on Sunday. Uh, as you mentioned, weather got in the way of all of that, um, still were able to have a 90 minute practice session on Saturday that led straight into, uh, the race, uh, ultimately no qualifying. Um, and we'll probably touch on that here at some point down the road, but, um, I wanted to, to just to get your initial reaction. What is it like when you're there as a driver, you're, you know, prepared to have this set schedule, probably in lots of ways down to the minute almost in some cases. Uh, and that all gets tossed aside with weather. And there's probably a segment of that Saturday where you just don't even really know what's going on. Take me through kind of what that, that time in, in that Saturday was like for you. It's pretty unusual, mate. I mean, I gotta be honest with you. I, I maybe ignorance on my part. I just guess I didn't really realize that it rained in Texas that much. You know, that's one of the tracks you look at at the start of the year and you're like, that's going to be good weather. You know, uh, so the fact that it was even on the schedule, like on the radar, was just crazy to me. Um, what does it look like? Well, we got to the track. Hey, Jack, are you still there? Looks like we might have lost you. You know, these tight schedule weekends. That being said, you do go to Texas and you usually bank on the weather, so maybe it was a one-off. Um, but it was immediately about the, well, if, if we don't get this done, what does it mean for, you know, qualifying? What does it mean for race one? If race one gets rained out, when are we going to do it? Are we going to stay till Monday? Are we going to make just the next race a double points race? I mean, there's a lot of variables and... Um, Oh, I guess interesting set of circumstances that we don't know. The IndyCar are trying to figure out as you know, quick, quickly, but also as correctly uh, as as possible. And I think that's really hard to try and do. Uh, you know, then naturally they have what twenty four drivers, twenty four entries of people, just an email in, texting, calling, bombarding them with just you know, lots of uh, info because we're trying to figure it out because then we're trying to plan uh, and change that up to um, 
to fix and suit all of that, you know, and it, it's silly, but like in that moment, you know, one of my first thoughts was, okay, I need to extend my rental car. I need to change my flight till Monday and, you know, things like that. And it's, uh, it always makes me smile in some ways because I think people think that when you're in that weekend, you're, you know, excluded then from still real life. And that was like a real life thing. Like, okay, they changed the schedule. Here's the knock on effect. And it looks like having to change my rental car. You know, and just kind of goofy things like that, mate. But I mean, on the whole, you know, I felt I felt very prepared heading into Texas. I thought our test had gone well. You know, we had a clear outline plan, I guess is the best way to describe it, of how we were going to, uh, you know, try and go through practice, try and get through qualifying, head into the race. And, you know, when it changes like that so quickly, you know, I think everyone just has to be relaxed. Um you know, open-minded, and I have to say that's probably the thing I struggle with the most. Uh, you know, when we go to the, to the track and it's like, are we going to go out? Are we not going to go out? We're waiting around all day. You know, like rain days at Indy, just you know, in, in my head, a, a tough. You know, that you know, it'd be rainy all day, yet we'd hang out just to squeeze in ten minutes. You know, I, I've never always understood that. I'm very much a person of if we're going to go on track, let's go on track. If we're not going to go on track, let's do something else for the day um so interesting day mate and again just to go back to the schedule i think it's tough to try and squeeze in that many events on that short a time because then you have no margin no margin of error without it having a knock-on effect to someone else so i think i understand why we're doing it right now but i think the ovals really should be even like the street circuits this year you know friday afternoon practice qualify Saturday morning, race Saturday afternoon, race Sunday. You know, I think we're trying to squeeze, at least on the ovals, too much in because on a road course, if it rains, no problem. You put your wets on and crack on. On an oval, I mean, you're pretty much totally then at the uh, mercy of the track and the weather conditions. And on that day, I mean, it took hours to dry. Yeah, it did. And it was... I'm trying to remember. I got to the track there um, probably a couple hours before practice was supposed to start. And I mean, I knew it was, it was a foggy, um, rainy, weird day coming in, but I didn't know that I necessarily expected uh, the track dry hairs to still be blowing that morning. I, I imagine it was probably really hard to dry the track just because of how muggy and, and overcast it was you certainly weren't getting any help from the sunshine at all but um yeah man it, it really took that track uh quite a long while to dry and i know i know practice i think local time was supposed to start at uh 11 30 um ends up we aren't didn't get going until 1 30 um and that ran until three and then they moved the race up i think it was about 30 35 minutes as far as the actual green flag time is concerned and um ultimately ruled that for you guys to get the ample amount of time to um you know digest what you learned at practice and then take an hour to go out and qualify and then learn from that and go run the race that there just wasn't enough time in there uh to qualify now i think lots of folks understood the no qualifying part for, uh, for Saturday, you know, trying to making sure that you guys got the race in because there was some rain that was coming there in the evening. I know that was 
almost as big of a concern as just um, when the track was going to be dry to start. But um, what what did you think of the? I know we learned later after the fact that you know the whole no qualifying idea um, is ultimately a, a rule that IndyCar has, or at least an interpretation of what they have on the books. Um, what were your thoughts on, you know, not being able to qualify, particularly for that second race? I know you were up there. I think, what was it? Did you start fifth or so for that second race? So I know it didn't, it necessarily, um, didn't, didn't hurt you in any way, but, um, I know it was certainly a big topic of conversation once we got into race two. I mean, that's an easy one to answer, mate. Honestly, it's, it's extremely dependent and only dependent on, did it affect you in a good way or a bad way? Yeah. It, it is that simple. You know, the guys who were complaining about it, as I would have done, if we had, you know, we started more towards the back, you just want the opportunity to try and qualify, right? Um, personally, it probably helped us some. You know, I think if we'd have qualified sixth and fifth, which is where we started for race one and race two, we'd have been pretty happy leaving qualifying in that position. You know, that being said, you know, we kind of went there thinking that we could qualify around that area, maybe a little bit better. So, uh, I mean, yeah, even for us, it would have been nice to have got the opportunity to do that. I think we showed really great pace uh, in both races. And I think you saw a lot of the cars, um, you know, the ones who maybe we thought were going to be quick started a bit further back. They still got to the front, you know, and, and uh, vice versa. So, um I don't know, man. I mean, it's such a it's such a tough one. I mean, what do you do? You know, it it only depends on how it's affected you. In 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 truth, because if if it is affecting us in a negative way, I can tell you that we would have been straight to CJ and been like, hey, this is this is BS. You know, we need to be able to qualify. You know, we shouldn't be paying the price for what's happened in previous weekends. This particular time, you, you can't help but agree it was in our favor. And uh, it worked out well for us. So, yeah, mate, I think only dependent on how it affects you. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It was, as you mentioned, you know, it's not like at least certainly in that, that race one, it's not like guys that were in the back of the pack weren't able to move up at all. Um, I think Tony can I think the greatest the example. Thing I'd, yeah, go the thing I'd add to that is, on, you know, on a weekend like Texas with, with no second lane, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point today. Um, when the race is processional, it definitely makes it harder. You know, and I think that was another big reason why people wanted to, which of, of course we could understand. We would have wanted to have done the same. Um, so I think that was a big factor into the decision or the, the frustration, should we say, for some people. It was, it was weird because it was almost like a perfect storm uh, of all of these different factors that maybe without one or two of them probably wouldn't have made this quite as big of a storyline, but you had, you had going into the first oval, uh, or oval races of the year. So, um, you know, maybe some guys there farther down in points felt like they had, um, a much better oval car or a chance to compete on ovals than they had, uh, in, in road and street course races, which is certainly understandable. I mean, for, well, I'll pull out an example last year. Um, Connor Daly, I think landed, uh, four top tens in his five ovals 
for Carlin. Um, and they weren't in a single top 10 otherwise with Max Chilton on the road and street courses. Um, so that's a team right there that felt like they had a lot of momentum in their oval package that, um, you know, with Connor starting, I think he started in the, the very back. I think he started 24th for both races. And that was because, um, Max, I think had a, maybe a so-so, um, race one, and then, uh, had some mechanical issues that ended his, uh, St. Pete race after like 20 laps or so. So you're coming in to the first oval races of the year, uh, where guys are wanting to try and prove themselves. It's only the third and fourth race of the year. So, um, you know, the, the points breakdown isn't necessarily very, um, you know, there it's maybe not quite as rigid as it might be, say, nine, 10, 11 races into the year. Um, you know, I, I mean, I know, for example, like first to, uh, to like 18th or 19th place was separated by like, you know, 30 or 40 some points going into the weekend. So, um, for not a whole lot of points, you could certainly, you know, be set up pretty, uh, deep in the, the pack. You mentioned the weather that we don't necessarily always expect at Texas. And then the racing line, um, it was just really tough to pass, at least it looked like, um, on track there, which maybe is a, a good way for us to dive into this. Now. Um, it, it was a topic of conversation coming into the weekend with how last year's race went. Um, we came out of last year's or out of, the, uh, the, the test from a couple months ago, um, knowing that it didn't seem like the track was, was any easier to drive up beyond that first lane. Um, and we, we know that's all due to the traction compound that, uh, together NASCAR, uh, officials and Texas motor speedway officials, uh, decided to apply to those second and third lanes up there on the track in the corners, uh, in the fall of 2019, ahead of NASCAR's playoff race there, it was, became an, an issue last year for the one day event at Texas for IndyCar in June. Um, and I, I, I guess I would say processional is probably a, a pretty good way to describe that race. And in, in some ways, uh, I mean, a lot of it because of how many consecutive laps Scott Dixon um, both led and then just really ran away from the field with. Um, so we knew coming into Saturday and Sunday that this was going to be a topic and drivers had said after that test that they didn't feel like it was any better despite Texas trying to rub tires in the space and scrub the track of, of, um, you know, any remnant of that actual material though it had stained the track. I think from what I understood, the, the stain in some ways, um, was maybe the worst part, or at least we expected it to be because, um, the darker track would, would attract a lot more heat, which I know just makes it harder for you guys to gain traction. Um, particularly in that race one, what did you experience, um, on the track? And I guess maybe even in practice as well, compared to what you had, um, in that March test and, and what you ran in last year in your first race at Texas. Coming out of the test, mate, I think it was pretty clear that that lane was not going to rubber in. Uh, I got up there at the test in March, and uh, honestly, that, that was the last time I ventured up there. Uh, <laughs> I think the only the only other time I was close was on that, you know, the the restart of race two, you know, going around the outside of uh, Pato and Will. And I think at that point it was safe because the speeds were, you know, a bit slower than when you're arriving at it. 
you know, at 220 plus or whatever the top speed is, it's much better when you're coming out of turn four in first gear. Although I didn't love how slow the starts were. I think the, I understand why they did it. Uh, and I appreciate the tweet that went out uh, this this week saying, you know, it's probably going to happen again because it's a money sport, you know, as we all know. I just think there needs to be a little consideration on tracks that NASCAR and IndyCar share together. You know, <laughs> otherwise, we it's not sustainable to keep going there, having a processional race. It's boring for the fans. doesn't make for great racing. I did think the racing was quite exciting, actually, this year. A lot closer than really think it got strung out too heavily. Uh, I think the amount of yellow that happened because of the uh, starting race two turned it into a three-stop race. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual... Uh, I, don't, I can't even remember what they call it. It's like a P... Um, PJI or something like oh, that. Oh, it uh, it's P- PJ1 is the... Yeah, the PJ1. Compound, yeah. Um, I must have misread the uh, I as a one. Uh, <laughs> I think it's it sucks because, you know, for anybody else, and I'm sure there's lots of people who can relate to this, I remember watching the battle between uh, Tony Kanaan, you know, Graham Rahal, James Hinchcliffe, I think it was 2016. And I yeah. was sat in Average Joe's bar, you know, sports bar in Broad Ripple at the year because we weren't racing that year. And I just remember thinking, wow, what a great race. You know, and I, I for sure I'm not saying we should bring back pack racing. That's the last thing I think IndyCar need right now. But I do think what makes places like Iowa quite exciting is the fact that you see cars run too, like, too wide, you know, mm-hmm. and you can do it, you know, somewhat confidently. You know, you, you know where your car's going to run, and that's great. Texas have ruined that. And I understand the reasons why. You know, but I think it, it just kills kills our race, you know, in, in so many ways. And I think that's also going back to qualifying, why so many people had beef about qualifying, um, which I would if, if we weren't on the nice end of it. Um, but the actual tarmac itself, you know, I was trying to think about how you could explain what it feels like being on there. And it just feels like you go from having, you know, really good grip, the car's really working in the track to driving on ice. And at that point you're like, well, is the front going to just keep understeering to the wall? You know, or is the rear just going to snap at any point? The way, where they started it is actually, as you turn into turn one, the right rear ends up kind of being on that pavement for, you know, quite a bit. And then that's an unnervy feeling because is it, is it the pavement that's causing the, rear to feel like it's going to spin out is it just because texas is a really difficult place in general and there's something else happening um and then i thought it was interesting when you know watching back one of the races and i can't remember if it was race one or race two but when when simon will and pato were three wide going into turn three i was surprised that will didn't back out of that maneuver a little sooner because he ended up being like all four wheels in the uh, in that, and then but where he ended up hitting the wall, I thought was interesting because it, you could just see that he he didn't want to keep turning the wheel or keep adding any throttle in case one end just kind of snapped. And bearing in mind, he got on there on the entry of turn three, but I don't think he actually ended up hitting the wall until like nearly the exit of four. You yeah, know, so he got a long that. way. 
he got a long way around the corner because I think at that point like you have to keep turning, but he was so nervous too because you, honestly, mate, you don't know what end is going to be the issue at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, it's just sad to me because I don't think, I understand the money reason. I think we all can collectively understand that, you know, and we can go, okay, fair, no problem. But there has to be another solution because this right now isn't the solution. And I don't see how you could consistently keep going back, especially after having seen how awesome the racing can be and accept that that is just how it is now. Yeah, it's it's tough because I imagine, you know, if you're Firestone, I mean, it's got to be an impossible task to try to try and. You know, they, you know, they could go and say, try to design a t- an IndyCar tire that for, you know, with its technical specs, uh, which I'm not certainly going to profess to be an expert of, can run on that. But then if you have to change things so much for them to be able to run on that surface, does that then mess up just running on the, the traditional untouched asphalt that's right below it? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um Eddie Gossage did tweet because I know he got um, he had it pretty tough on on social media this weekend. And I'll we'll make uh, a point to to point out that this wasn't wasn't you know uh, solely an Eddie Gossage decision. And frankly, it's not really even in his uh, decision making process at all. It's up to NASCAR's um, NASCAR officials, NASCAR I believe like the drivers' council, and then the engineer at Texas Motor Speedway all have to come to an agreement of whether something like this is going to be applied or not. Um, and I don't know that we rest, we necessarily really understood what was going to happen going into last year. I know, I think if I remember right, we went to the track and it was just this new thing, um, that we didn't, I think a lot of drivers maybe either didn't expect or didn't know how it was going to treat the car. And, uh, you know, now obviously in, in 2021, we, we knew what this was likely going to turn into and it, and it did, and it was a shame. Um, but yeah, I don't know what the answer is, uh, because IndyCar is left with so few oval tracks on the calendars to begin with. And you don't want to just turn into a, a road and street course only series that also runs the 500, um, because oval racing is so exciting, but I know that those promoters also have to get people out uh, to watch those races in person. And if IndyCar essentially has Worldwide Technology Raceway and IMS in Texas as the only three tracks that they can work with to run ovals, it it puts IndyCar in a really tough position and probably puts Texas um, in a pretty good bargaining place to where they're going to say with the, the money that they get from an IndyCar race um, compared to what they bring from NASCAR, which is exactly what Eddie said, is not going to, to necessarily um, entice them to, to do anything with the track. I know I'm sure they're willing to work and try to find a solution, but I don't know that anyone knows what that is. Um, and I don't know, frankly, if we will know what that is going into what I would assume will be next year's race at Texas. I know, I think it was Graham that pointed out post-race that maybe over time, as that PJ one gets run on as it will be in the, you know, the all-star race and the, the NASCAR playoff on the road that hopefully that eventually starts to wear off maybe. Um, but, you know, I certainly would hate 
to have to continue to come to a track like this and know that you're only going to have a handful of opportunities for you guys to be able to pass because it certainly, as you mentioned, takes what used to be probably arguably the, the best, most exciting track and race that IndyCar was able to produce, you know, even minus the trip, the, the pack racing part of it into a, you know, kind of a, a bummer of a race and certainly one that pays massive advantages to someone who starts the race up at the front. Um, well, let's, we'll, we'll quickly touch on the, the results of the race. Um, I think we said this already, but Scott Dixon pulled off his fifth uh, ever victory at Texas Motor Speedway, defending his win from last year. Uh, he led all but, I think, six laps of the race. Pretty remarkable. Um, how he you know, ran so strongly again, just like last year. Um, you had a, a fairly good view up there toward the front. What was your experience um, like in that race, um, both – a and seeing Scott, you know, pretty much hold control over it. Um, but also, you know, what was the, the battle like up there toward the front as people were trying to, you know, find any opportunity possible to say, move up from sixth to fifth or third to second or, or, or things like that. I think that's what we actually did. We started, uh, we started sixth for race one and, uh, Got a good jump at the start, managed to settle into um, P5 just behind Colton. I mean, my, my view at that point I was just that the Ganassi cars look very strong again. You know, I think he and uh, Scott and Alex Ballou just took off. I, I felt like, um, you know, that being said, I felt like they were starting to come back to us. Maybe the first two-thirds of the stint, they looked very good. I thought we looked pretty strong on the final third. Um, yeah, the further up you can start on oval, mate, the better. Like every time that dirty air effect just, you know, trickles, uh, you know, back and back and back. Um, you know, that's, at that stage of the race, I thought we were on for, you know, pretty uh, pretty decent result, honestly. Uh, I think we had just gotten by, just before that first yellow, you know, we had just gotten by um, Colton, and uh, then it went yellow and not sure exactly what. Look, it seemed like he was dealing with some issue at that point. Uh, not entirely sure what it was, or maybe he was just degradating too much. And then, again, I think people need to remember the, the closing speed in IndyCar is really hard to get right because, I mean, Joseph, I would never class as a, you know, dirty driver or anything like that, nothing of the sort, ended up getting into the back of uh, Sebastian, um, you know, which created the first... Uh, Yellow, we had a we had a good pit stop, not a great pit stop. Colton managed to get back by me, but um, yeah, I mean, it just whenever when, the start of any weekend, if I if I participated in you know fantasy IndyCar, Scott Dixon would be apart from myself would be one of the guys I would go with every weekend. You know, the guy is just an absolute machine. You know, it just every, everywhere he goes, he's just a uh, he just got it. You know, and I think when you saw the, when I watched the race back, you know, his starts were good every time. His restarts were good every time. Um, you know, and this is beyond just a bit of experience the guy has. I mean, he's just, a, you know, an absolutely incredible race car driver. And um, I thought Scott McLaughlin looked like he had a great, uh, a great race when I watched it back. 
Um, you know, he looked really, really fast at the test in March and, you know, rookie on his first oval. You know, I know how hard that was, albeit we didn't get the chance to test. But I mean, what a what an incredible drive. I would almost say I felt like he maybe was driver of the day uh, for race one because I actually didn't realise until I watched it back just how close to Scott he was there at the end. I don't know if he was, you know, mounting a challenge, but I mean, he was incredibly close to him. So um, yeah, race one was also where I managed to make some good friends. We had a shifting light issue, uh, which kind of was hard to navigate around, um, you know, maybe squeezed Alexander a bit tight, but, you know, chatted to him and uh, cleared the air there and, no, Graham didn't seem too happy with me, but also managed to talk to him and clear the air there as well. So, you know, I thought race one on the whole was a really good day. It was a a very good, uh, you know, first race, shall we say, to try and learn from and advance into, uh, you know, day two. But also maybe, maybe it needed it, but I certainly felt like there was you know, some some drama that was almost starting to stir. And, you know, for anyone who knows me, knows that's not my not my style. It's not how I want to be. Uh, you know, I'm not adverse to confrontation. I don't like it. I don't seek it, but I'm never going to back down from it. Um, you know, and in the end, it was just more about trying to not let these things blow out of proportion at the end of the day. You know, we want to be tough competitors with everybody, um, you know, without getting... Because I don't want to be the guy who, you know, as soon as someone even looks, you know, to make a move, just be like, oh, there you, there you go. Like, there's the there's the position. Good job. You know, like, I, I want to be the guy who's going to fight you, you know, for every position, you know, because we know what we want to come and achieve this year. And that's really great things. And it's certainly not just, you know, wanting to be the easiest guy to overtake in the, uh, on the field. So I thought race one was interesting in, in many, many ways. Yeah, I'll, I'll just touch on real quick um, for folks that either didn't watch the race or maybe missed a, a story or two out there um, or, or some of Graham's comments. I know he was a little unhappy. Um, maybe, maybe that's an understatement. Um, a little unhappy with uh, what he perceived as a block, um, which then IndyCar looked back at um, and, and didn't penalize you for. I, I will admit um, – Watching it at the time, you know, it just looked like a, a, you know, a defensive move. I certainly looked like you made a move before he did. You certainly probably knew where he was probably going to try and put the car next. He was running pretty close to you. But um, I, I, you know, as a, a neutral watcher of, of the race, didn't know that I saw anything that was super out of the ordinary about it, but I know he was really unhappy with it. Um, but it, as you mentioned, it did seem like hopefully you guys were able to, um, you know, kind of clear, clear the air there. Um, and I was, I was honestly surprised, too. mate, how, how, at least on TV, how mm, upset or irritated, frustrated, whatever the appropriate word is, he seemed to be about it. You know, because like when I watched it back, I mean, again, squeeze a little too hard for sure. You know, I had a chat, a nice chat with Ari Leindyke, Max Pappas, you know, the driver stewards heard their side. You know, we have to give a car width on the bottom without someone having to cross the white line. You know, no problem. I completely understood that. But, you know, from what people told me before I even had a chance to like see it was that he was on like a, 
a rampage down to like come and have a word with me like there and then you know and and that when I chatted to him that was not the vibe I got from him like at all you know we just had a a chat and he said you know you move first and that's fair he's like you just squeeze a bit hard on the bottom and that literally was like the extent of our chat you know I, I really like Graham um you know, we've had a lot of good battles together. I actually saw him in the gym yesterday morning. I was like, of all the people. Uh, but again, you know, the air was clear. You know, we chatted about the race and race two. And, you know, how did we feel after we had the, you know, second uh, vaccine shot, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, it's not a, there's no more storyline, you know, to that one. But uh, it did seem, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I really didn't understand the, you know, the, The uh, it was about to volcano, you know, where really it was just a little bit of smoke pouring out the top, opposed to the full thing erupting. Great way to put it. I, I almost wonder. Um, I didn't. Think. It makes for good retweets, mate. You know, that's the reality. That's a fair point, and I I almost wondered. <laughs> I mean, part of it is because IndyCar seems to, for the most part, at least for the last couple of years. We don't, we don't typically get too many of those heated moments, you know, on track between driver A and driver B. I know there's some portion of the motorsports fan base that really kind of craves, I don't know if you call it tension or, um, I mean, fighting's maybe not even the, the great way, but just some action off of the track, maybe. Um, yeah, it's that bad boy, you know, like drama filled. You know, like people don't want to say it, but like I'll say, you know, that kind of more the stuff you associate with NASCAR, yeah. like characters and storylines. And, you know, how's this going to go three races later? You know, are they going to fight? And I'm like, guys, I'm not, I'm not going to shy away from it. But I also am not trying to have an issue with anyone up and down the pit lane. And people want that. You know, I think one of the funniest things about Texas if someone was said, what's one of the highlights that you remember about that race, whether it was growing up or what you've watched on TV since, and it was when AJ got a hold of Ari, <laughs> you know, in the, uh, after the race, you know, yeah. people, people still kind of want that. They say they don't. And some people say they do, you know, I would say on the whole, the most of the, at least it's only the stuff that people tagged me in or replied to the tweet in, you know, it seemed like they thought it was, it was fair and that, you know, racing is hard and, you know, this isn't just a case of, you know, let, let me, let anybody pass willy nilly. And I think it was a, a nice weekend for us as a team and me as a driver to let people know that we're not going to, uh, you know, be that way. And, you know, we're certainly not pushovers, uh, you know, and nothing of the, uh, nothing of the sort. And I, I guess, but again, I, I didn't tweet it because I thought that, you know, the moment had passed and there was no need to like keep rehashing it. But I think it's interesting when we talk about it now, you know, is if I hadn't have raced Alexander hard and Graham hard and just gave away those two spots, I have to then answer to Michael Shank, Jim Meyer, you know, alternation, Sirius XM about, you know, why we're not being more aggressive, like how badly do I want this? You know, like what am I prepared to do to get the results, et cetera, et cetera. And I think people forget that, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I have bosses, you know, like I have people to answer to, you know, people I have to show determination to because I am in a contract year. 
and I do want to carry on in IndyCar. And, you know, those moments um, are, are really important, mate, you know, and it was, uh, it was just funny, you know, the, the, the way the whole thing came out, you know, you thought we just had a massive crash, you know, like we had just wrote, written off two cars and we need to have this whole, you know, big old sit down chat. And I'm like, you got by me. Like you, you still made the move. Like, why, why is everyone still mad about this? Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, you know, we, we didn't hear anything maybe quite nearly as, uh, as much to do about, you know, the two accidents that did happen in that race. Um, we, although, you know, we, we move on to, to race two, you mentioned that you had a chance to rewatch that. Um, and before we talk about your race, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll take your uh, impression of what we saw to uh, to start that race two leading up to the green flag. You mentioned, I think, already that you felt like the restart was maybe a bit slow, and we've heard that from sure. drivers. Um, Definitely, yeah. What, what what I think, like from watching it back, ultimately led to that that big six car pileup that we ended up with. I think the slow starts may contribute to that all the time. You know, I, I frankly, I just don't understand, uh, you know, a, a super speedway while the rate, why, why the race dies 85 miles an hour, you know, like nearly not even at the very top end of first year, nearly, you know, like still like a little bit of margin. You know, I just, it creates just a massive accordion effect, you know, because everyone's within their right to leave a car width to try and get a good jump themselves. Um you know, but even I, the speed I thought we were going, I was in second gear. Then I realized actually, no, we're not going that speed. Had to downshift first. And then we finally went. And as soon as we got to the, you know, the, I think it was the first dog leg, or maybe we had got to start finish at that point. They said, yellow, 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 it's behind you. And you can see the checkup. You know, I saw the, I saw the onboard from, you know, Alexander and he was going. And then he had to stop. And the thing is that the more that happens, it's like when you're on a traffic jam, you know, on the highway, you know, you just see it gradually build the further back it goes. And it's such a shame to see what six cars, I guess, total, maybe more be completely out before they've even had a chance to like turn a lap. And I, I, I understand the racing side of um, the slow start and for people who aren't sure, what it basically allows is it limits slipstream into turn one because everyone's still accelerating at a similar pace, yeah? So that's why people do it. It's to try and prevent one guy getting a massive draft and the guy starting on pole hopefully has the best chance of heading into turn one leading still. That's why people do it. I just think that I think it's unnecessary. You know, I think it's unnecessary for everyone else in the field because, you know, one guy hits the brake, the guy behind him has to hit the brake, you know, and the more it becomes spread out, the more that that becomes a, you know, a big deal. And, you know, although there were some laughs about it on, you know, social media, knowing he got out of the car completely fine. I mean, you never want to see, you know, a car essentially take the green flag upside down like Connor did. You know, and in that moment, I'm like, where are you meant to go? You know, I saw it look like James managed to get through. 
and uh, kudos to him because I don't I don't know where you go in that moment. You just kind of hope that the sea just opens a little bit and you can you know shine on through. Uh, but you know, but the further back you are, the just the, the harder and harder it gets. Um, so I thought the I think the race starts are unnecessarily slow on a super speedway when it's below 90 miles an hour, at least. Yeah. And we saw that uh, another great example of it. Uh, it was last year at worldwide technology raceway and race one um, had a pretty similar thing. I think was it maybe only four cars, um, four or five maybe that got involved, but, and I think, what was it? Three of them were, were Andretti cars. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I remember that now. Yeah. It was, uh, it was Rossi. It was and- not a fun team meeting after I can imagine. Yeah. It was Rossi and Veach and Marco. And I can't, I know there were other cars involved and I'm sure. not coming to me at the time, but yeah. Um, I have to, I have to wonder here. Well, here's a question from someone who um, you know, maybe doesn't understand quite as much about it. Why is it such a big deal? If you're say the guy that's on pole, to guarantee that you have the lead still going into lap or going into turn one of lap one of a 248 lap race. Um, when the risk of it is possibly that happening in the back of the field, potentially to one of your own teammates, if they're back there. I mean, the obvious answer to that is if you're on pole, you want to be leading every lap. I guess you that's know, true. Like, you know, like, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a bit of a, it's a difficult, that's a difficult question in my mind to like really justify because you've worked hard to be on pole and, you know, the pole guy, I, I think the pole guy deserves the right to decide when to go. I don't think the speed has to be that slow, but I think if he's going 110 miles an hour and accelerates in the exact same spot, that perhaps those accidents are just less likely to happen. Um, sure. You know, it could be 120. But ultimately, as a competitor, you're starting on pole. The best place to be is leading. You know, clean air, no dirty air, clean track. You're not having to worry about anybody else. Maybe your car runs better in clean air. <clears throat> you know, maybe because you know you're starting on pole, maybe you set your car up to be that way. And I don't know a single driver, unless they're on a fuel save strategy, who actively gives away a position. Sure. That's a fair point. And I, that being said, you know, I, I think the solution to that, to go back to the like the second part of that question, is more along the lines of um, I think it's speed. You know, I think the race speed just needs to be higher. Yeah, I have to wonder, you know, maybe if maybe if IndyCar and I don't know if it's Anything to the level of, you know, setting a, a minimum speed, say, as you come around turn three or turn four for the, the pole sitter to be at in order to be able to take the green flag. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, maybe I, I imagine that's something that will at least be brought up um, as we go into 2022, as far as the rule book is concerned, because, yeah, you certainly don't want to see something like that continue to happen every couple no, and- we have, especially when we only have only a handful of ovals to begin with. For sure. And I, I mean, I, my personal feeling of it is, you know, it's not, it's not the driver's necessarily responsibility in that moment to protect all the other cars. I think IndyCar can mandate certain things like minimum speed, 
you know, like on this start should be somewhere in the realm of at least second gear, you know, like, or, or re-bring back the start zones, which is one thing they've tried to not do this year. Um, you know, so I definitely don't put the emphasis on Scott, you know, was he was, he was on pole for that race, was he? Yeah. Yeah, he was. I don't put the emphasis on Scott and go, oh, God, Scott, you're responsible for those cars that crashed. I mean, I'm not saying that at any moment. I just feel that the race starts don't need to be that slow. I understand it from a competitor's stance. I think IndyCar should basically go, right, if you're on pole, that's fine. You can decide when you actually want to accelerate, but you'll do it in these two or three set of circumstances or parameters sure i think that that makes a lot of sense um as you mentioned earlier a race that ultimately did not end as you guys would have hoped um i know we saw some smoke coming out of um your right rear wheel um what was it just just before the halfway point i think um and and ended up with you finishing was it was it 17th is that where you guys ended up uh, I got to be honest with you, mate. After I saw that we weren't going to go back out, I didn't really pay too much attention to where we were on the standings at that point. Uh, I think it was around that area, yeah. I remember like glancing at the screen, um, you know, because we were talking about if there was a chance to get out, that you know, if there was another yellow, maybe we could have leapfrogged, uh, you know, a couple of spots or whatever. But um, yeah, that was such a shame. You know, we had a mega restart. I you know managed to get around the outside of. Uh, you know, Pato and Will, you know, into turn one, go from fifth to third was, you know, sat pretty comfortable. I thought in uh, in third, we had a great pit stop. Joseph actually overcut us, you know, the uh, wily old fox himself. And um, again, had another good battle with him. But again, at the point where the, you know, the wheel decided or the bearing decided to uh, let go, you know, was running, you know, right on his, uh, right on his bumper for, P4 at the time, I was in P4 at the time, and you know I really felt like we had a good uh, a good podium car to try and uh, battle with there. And actually, you know, I I, I felt it the lap before uh, through turn one and two. It you know the car just got super free, kind of out of nowhere, and then you know heading into three and four, you know I was like, okay, was that just was it wind? Was it something else? And then I immediately realized we had a had an issue and a problem. And, um, you know, Pato obviously was able to get by before going into one again. And then you just see the, the smoke come out of the back of the wheel. And it was it was such a shame for everyone at, you know, Maya Shank Race. And the guys had done such another good job in, in pit lane all day. You know, I thought we prepared really well. I, you know, on that day, there's no point saying we weren't. We were fortunate a little bit with our... Although I think we would have still qualified well. You know, obviously our starting spots were good. But we also ran up front all day, both races. You know, no one, no one can say we didn't. Um, so disappointing, really disappointing that it happened on, you know, what I felt could have been for sure another top five, you know, or maybe another podium. But um, I think it was nice just to show the pace that we have, the speed that we have, and hopefully we can just carry that into May, uh, you know, first off at the GP, but then obviously for the Indy 500. And I think the, the atmosphere within the team right now, there's, you know, incredible confidence still very humble, you know, but there's a nice, like, even attitude in the team, you know, that we, you know, we can do this. And I feel that everyone in Myershank Racing is 
you know, really behind uh, me and has, you know, great faith in me. And, you know, I hope the next uh, little set of races, as we say, go, go well. And um, yeah, you know, just, just keep, just keep podding along, mate. You know, I, I think to take the next step and be battling, you know, for podiums, hopefully week in, week out, um, which I think is probably as much as you can hope to do in IndyCar and hope that one weekend you end up winning it's just marginal gains, you know, it's five areas, 1%, just keep chipping away, you know, on my side, on the team side, um, you know, I think we'll be really in great shape. So definitely an element of disappointment coming out of the weekend as anyone would be. But I do feel that, you know, without even trying to be overly optimistic, I think there were so many positives that that momentum wheel is still spinning. You know, it's not like, oh my God, that killed our momentum. I mean, there's so many good things happening for us as a team right now. And, you know, I feel like for, for me as a driver, I'm, I'm learning and growing and I'm, I feel very open-minded to wanting to improve. Um, that we, that's we're just going to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Pato. Um, he was, was able to, to break through and get his first win of his career there. Um, I was flying, mate. He, was, he put on an incredible race there, made a, a pretty great pass there on Joseph with um, I think it was just under 25 laps to go and rode to his first win of his IndyCar career. Now that we've got um, two now first time winners in the IndyCar series so far this year um, here, before we get to our Twitter questions, I I wanted to ask you, does, does someone like Pato um, breaking through and winning a race and and someone like Alex Polo breaking through and winning the first race, um, does that in, in any way give you, I don't know if it's more confidence or just maybe it, maybe it just shows to other folks that we could, you know, that the guys who haven't yet won a race in the series should be taken really seriously, um, week in and week out as far as legitimate contenders like yourself. I think all the above mate, really, really? um, uh, you know, I certainly don't feel any extra pressure apart from the pressure that we go to the track and try and have good results every weekend. Uh, you know, I think Alex, when he won, you know, put on an absolute clinic at Barber. Uh, and I thought Pato certainly looked like he did it at Texas. I mean, when he was behind me in the race, I mean, he was stalking all the time. You know, he looked really, really good. Um, you know, his his move was great. He got, he got a little more sideways you know, then uh, I, I didn't realize until I watched the race back with him and Will Power. I mean, that was pretty exciting and, you know, <laughs> glad that um, glad that he was on the right side of that that day because I've seen that go south so many times, you know, Colton Herter and Scott crashing almost the exactly same way, uh, you know, a few years ago in Texas. So really happy to see that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, not necessarily like the next generation, but just the, you know, the, the current batch of drivers in IndyCar might not have the most experience in the field, but they're certainly extremely talented. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to join this first-time winner's club, you know, as quickly and as soon as possible. Um, you know, that being said, I feel like there's a lot of good things happening for us. Um, you know, it's a weird one trying to say be patient. I think the patience is not becoming frustrated. Um I think we've shown, you know, last year and this year in a, in a much more complete way that we can come and compete. And I think in IndyCar racing, that's that's what you can hope to do, you know. And if it's your day, it's great. And, you know, we'll try and maximise that day when it comes around. And 
otherwise we keep going to the track and we keep trying mate. i think at the end of the day the the current drivers up and down the indycar field is i'm not going to say the most competitive year that i've ever ever seen but i do think it's probably one of the most competitive years in you know ntt indycar history um you know you just look up and down the field and it, it's just stacked mate you know it's so stacked it's mega and you know i said to the team from a selfish note that it's a great year to have a great year you know and um i would just love to you know finish the year in a really strong position especially in such a strong field like it is right now so yeah mate all, all good just you know really happy for for Pato, uh, you know, I know a ton of the guys from uh, Aaron McLaren SP from when it was just Smith Peterson Motorsports, you know, from my days in Indy Lights to, you know, the partnership we had with them a few years ago. So happy for a lot of guys there. Uh, you know, we just want to join them in that first time winners club as quickly as possible. You mentioned Indy Lights. Uh, it's a great segue into the couple questions that we have. Uh, I know you you touched on this a, a tiny bit on Twitter, but we got a good question from Very Fake Phil, uh, who asks, "Hi Jack, is the 42 that you ran in Indy Lights a hitchhiker guide <laughs> to the Galaxy reference?" He's always wondered. It's uh, it, it fits. It it does fit, but that's not the reason. Uh, basically, the re- I, I used to run when I was in go kart, and when I very first started, I used to run 24. Uh, that's my mum's birthday. It was just the number that my dad gave me for obvious reasons. And uh, yeah, I ran 24 for a long time and then joined a category and 24 was taken and my dad didn't want to buy stickers. Uh, so we went, that's when we swapped to 42. And then <laughs> don't know what it was about being number 42, but I thought it always had a great ring. Um, I think it was a number I quickly kind of became associated with because we had good success every time we ran it, it felt like. And, um, yeah, when the opportunity came back to, uh, you know, be able to run 42, obviously I took it. I did ask Michael if we could run it in the IndyCar and, you know, number 60 has a, you know, a, a very big meaning to him as well. So, um, not exactly sure we settled on 60. It's more just, I got told that we were going to be number 60, but yeah, the, uh, actually trying to find a, social media handle that is without any numbers because I think it's a little confusing for some people but <laughs> uh, yeah I, I would love the opportunity to to race uh, 42 again but um, you know I, I kind of numbers are great but I just love seeing my name on the side of a car really that's more important than anything I would, I yes. would have to think um, but I know there's uh, there's a story I think that I'd love to do some point just about asking or or team owners kind of what they um you know where what the history is behind the numbers you know i know there's like sure. for example with uh with mike you know they have the the 60 and the 06 you have um the ganassi guys that have always run you know 8 9 10 um there's uh the foyt cars that you know, our, our four and 14 and 41 and the, what else is there? Oh, there's the Ray Hall Letterman landing in racing guys that are, you know, 15, 30 and typically 45. Um, all I've always, um, always been fascinated about, you know, why, 
teams, um, you know, get locked in to, to certain numbers. And I'm sure Mike's got a, a great story with that 62. Um, let's see. Um, a question from George the fourth. Uh, what is your favorite EU? Uh, and then says in parentheses, now legend slash non-canon Booker series. Yeah, I think I may have actually answered that one on uh, Twitter. I guess sometimes just like, history um but yeah mate, I, I i think that's an interesting uh, interesting story and i like the direction they went with it so um i think him he is a character i'm pretty sure is canon now in some way but i don't think that trilogy is and i was very excited that it was star wars day yesterday <laughs> yep may 4th uh, um i know it's always always a fun one did you have anything that you either dressed up in or just a, a star Wars t-shirt that you always like wear on May the 4th every year? Well, I have this thing. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of it, but clearly it's, it's got me all hot bothered already. I can feel it brewing. Star Wars day is for everybody. Okay. But I have this big beef with people who aren't really star Wars fans who suddenly jump on the bandwagon for one day, you know? So like my wardrobe has many star Wars garments of which I wear regularly. So me wearing a Star Wars t-shirt yesterday wasn't like a big deal for me. And it's such a beef with people who like aren't fans who suddenly are like, oh, we're such a big fan. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, like, you're not allowed. This, this is for me. This is for real fans. <laughs> uh, but my, my day, uh, I watched the first episode of the animated show, The Bad Batch. And I thought that was really, really good. And then honestly, it was on all day in, in, in my house. I mean, you know, poor Gracie, she don't get a say when it's Star Wars Day, mate. It's on from the start of the day until we go to bed, you know, bless <laughs> her. But uh, it, it was it was really fun, mate. I, uh, I I definitely can geek out over over Star Wars or Harry Potter anytime. Absolutely. Um, a question here from Andy Merrick asks, uh, Jack, explain like I'm five. Um, what is trail breaking and how does it differ from normal breaking? And when do you trail break versus not? I mean, when do you trail break versus not is a is a great question, and it's pretty much something we talk about on every corner and every year, and it, it really depends on a lot of different factors. So if you said to me... ...deep, you carry the brake, you break into the actual corner itself. Um, there's no transition, basically, of braking and throttle it's very like a light like a kind of like a light switch still progressive in, in each application but no period without anything happening uh the opposite to trail braking is probably rolling speed through a corner where you jump off the brake a little bit sooner um you know if you imagine a, a speed trace you know just for a second obviously it'll it'll shoot up when you're accelerating you hit the brake it will dive down. Um, if you don't trail brake, sometimes it looks more like like a U shape on the bottom, where occasionally when you trail brake, it looks more like a V. You know, it's a bit of a, a sharper, aggressive uh, move. And I think, you know, each corner requires something different. And I think 
Indy GP is a great example of some corners you have to trail break, some corners you don't. But it's very, very dependent on on your car, uh, you know, the balance of your car at the time and, you know, also tyre life and things like that. But I would, yeah, I would say my most simple explanation would be trail braking is when there's no transition between braking and uh, throttle and it happens very late into the corner. Very interesting. Uh, and the last question um, saved one of the, the best for last from name cannot be blank asks, uh, what is the best form of potatoes? Um, I, I've spent thinking about this. Um, I'll probably Why? for French fries, although I will say a bad French fry is not fun to eat at all. And it's certain fast food restaurants you can go and, and get a, a really crummy batch of French fries and, and be pretty disappointed. Where, what takeout, what fast food do you think has the best fries? Uh, I, was, I was just actually talking about this with my wife. Um, I've never been, I don't know if they're the best or not, but I would say um, McDonald's has to be high up there. I really enjoy uh, Five Guys. So they're so basic. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're like they're like a reliable. Like uh, maybe that's although a whole. I will say, I think the last time I ate there, they were like way over salted and almost impossible. <laughs> so you have to run that risk. Um, five guys. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, five guys is probably my pick. Um, I'm, and I'm trying to think if if I'm leaving any anything out. How no, Arby's. I like them curly fries. Mm, that's a good one. Those are, and those are like, you can't find a, a really good, it's at least it's pretty rare to find a really good curly fry. That's a, that's a great point. That's a place that don't you like in and out burger. Good yeah. fries in and out burger. Yep. Those are good. And they have the, the, um, you can get them like with the, the cheese or I can't remember what the secret menu term is for them, but those are pretty solid too. Um, Again, another quick side note. Why do these places have secret menus? Or why are you trying to be secretive with your menu? We're trying to order from you. I don't get it. Yeah, the in and out thing I've never understood because it's like everyone, virtually everyone that is going to go to in and out knows. You're going to get a double-double and be done with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, trying to think, favorite potato. Honestly, from the UK, I mean, we, we have such a range of them. I love roast potatoes. Mm. I love baked potatoes. I love mashed potato. I love dauphinoise. I love French fries. I love curly fries. Uh, I mean, I love waffle fries. I mean, I just, I just guess I like potatoes. If you didn't pick up on that, yeah, a good waffle fry is good too. I know Chick Fil A is a, a good waffle fry place. I don't tend to eat those often, but that's always a good option. Yeah, Arby's probably has the maybe the advantage of like. You you probably go to our or if you if you're craving curly fries, like the only place that you can go to and probably be satisfied is like an Arby's, at least as far as fast food is concerned. I you you have some some upper tier choices on French fries, but you can probably go to a handful of places and at least be mildly satisfied. And and maybe you're not always necessarily picking the the place that you stop. Uh, particularly on you know what kind of fries they have maybe you do sometimes but uh no nah, honestly mate i mean if it's i'm pretty much happy to try anything yeah i think it's a good point um well that's where we will end it um thanks again for everyone for tuning into this week's episode of indycar weekly we will be back 
next week as we truly dive into the month of May. Um, we will be previewing the GMR Grand Prix um, and talking probably lots of um, month of May and general questions as we get into uh, the racing season at IMS. Um, so thanks again for tuning in. Uh, again, remember, if you have any questions, send them our way, um, either uh, by underscore Nathan Brown on Twitter or uh, Jack's handle with the number 42 in it that we got the backstory finally on this week. Um, thanks again for listening. Uh, for Jack Harvey, I'm Nathan Brown. Uh, please uh, tune in next week. All right. Now I am joined by USA Today and For the Wins, Michelle Martinelli, to tell us a little bit about her podcast um, that has started last month um, on all the all your favorite podcast platforms. It's called The Sneak. Um, it has some very interesting NASCAR connections, um, but is a, a really intriguing true tr- true crime podcast that I hope uh, race fans, um, and just general podcast listeners, uh, will be interested in diving into. So we brought Michelle on today to tell us a little bit about the sneak, um, to give you guys an idea, um, if you were interested in listening to it. So Michelle, thanks for joining us. Um, just, uh, give us a little, maybe a little bit of background about what the sneak is, um, before we dive into a little bit more about the, the third season here. Well, thank you so much for having me. This I'm really excited to be here. Um, as you mentioned, The Sneak is a, a true crime podcast from USA Today and For the Win. Um, we just put out our third season, and it is important to know that while we're on our third season, the seasons aren't necessarily connected. You don't have to listen to the first one to listen to the second one. You don't have to listen to the second to listen to the third. Um, but they're all, obviously I'm biased, they're all pretty compelling stories. They're, they're true crime stories that have a bit of a sports anchor to them or a sports theme to them, right? The, the first season was about a former football player who robbed an armored truck. Um, the second one was about a world champion surfer who became a jewel thief and eventually a murderer. And uh, so season three, which just came out last month, uh, is called The Disappearance of Mario Rossi. And Mario Rossi was a NASCAR crew chief and engineer and brilliant by, uh, you know, just about everyone we talked to said he was described him as a genius and an innovator. Um, And he very mysteriously disappeared in 1983. And his family has been looking for him ever since. I want to get uh, a quick, um, quick thing out of the way for my IndyCar listeners here. Um, You mentioned this uh, in some of previous communication. You have no indication that Mario Rossi is related to Alexander Rossi. I want to get that out of the way at the start. Yeah, that's really important. There is absolutely no evidence other than the fact that they have the same last name. There is no evidence that Alexander Rossi is remotely related to Mario Rossi. That's really important to get out of the way for, for this audience. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh, Cause I know we have, uh, you know, lots of, lots of Rossi fans in IndyCar, but Mario's story um, certainly seems really unique. Um, you were telling me a little bit off pod about um, how you came across his story and the idea for this podcast. And I know it's, it's not just centered on Mario, but it goes into this um, connection between his disappearance and this $300 million drug smuggling ring that is 
uh, in lots of ways related and tied back to NASCAR um, from the the 70s and 80s. So tell me a little bit about um, how you guys came across this idea to start along with, um, you know, how this relates back to this, this um, drug smuggling ring relates to Mario's story and his disappearance and everything. So we worked very closely with Mario Rossi's family in investigating this, and they had suspicions that he was involved in this drug smuggling ring, but never had anything confirmed or, you know, they just they didn't have any evidence. They just had suspicions. And we actually first found out about this uh, smuggling ring thanks to someone who was on uh, uh, on the podcast in season two. Um, my editor, Nate Scott, our narrator for The Sneak, uh, was doing an interview with this person and asked a very innocuous question about um, this person's experience after being incarcerated and getting, um, you know, trying to get his life together after that and, and very casually mentioned something about, you know, back when he was running drugs and working with a NASCAR team. And that sort of that piqued our interest a little bit. And we started to dig a little deeper and eventually got in touch with the Rossi family and they thought there might be a connection here as well. And so um, we started to investigate to see if Mario Rossi's 1983 disappearance was possibly related to this drug smuggling ring where less than a year earlier in 1982, the FBI arrested 70 people in uh, a day that the media at the time dubbed Black Thursday. The FBI arrested 70 people involved in this smuggling ring and uh, a big chunk of them were connected to in some way um, racing with even a handful, uh, a couple people who were arrested racing in the Daytona 500 that was only four days before the FBI had this big bust and arrested 70 people. Fascinating. Um, what was, I, I don't want you to, to give too much away, but what was the most interesting thing or maybe one of the most interesting things either related to um, Mario? I know he was a, a really famous crew chief at the time, um, really, really well respected in the NASCAR industry before his disappearance, either, you know, about his story or um, about this NASCAR um connection to this drug smuggling ring was there any one thing after you finished this project that just kind of stands out and still stays with you about you know the most interesting thing you learned when putting this together it's actually not something that i learned at the end it was closer to the beginning um you start to like you said at the time mario rossi was a very respected figure in the NASCAR community. But, you know, when I started to ask people in NASCAR now, whether it's drivers, crew chiefs, or just, you know, casual conversations, asking people about this, so many different people had never heard of Mario Rossi. They'd never heard of this drug smuggling ring. Um, and these seem like big moments in NASCAR history that, that you think at least some people would have heard of, or some people would have been comfortable talking about. Um, you know, the, the, the drug smuggling thing, you can understand why it's not necessarily highlighted as a part of NASCAR's history, why they might want to sweep that aside a little bit. But, you know, Mario Rossi had some really important contributions to the sport um, it, from a, a safety side and a technical and efficiency side. And so it surprised me that no one, actually only one person that I had talked to, uh, one driver I had talked to, Brad Kozlowski, 
was the only driver I spoke to who had ever even heard of Mario Rossi and knew a little bit about his, you know, the rumors of his disappearance. Um, you mentioned um, you know, he's a he's a crew chief back in the 60s and 70s, um, was on the the cars of the Allison brothers, for example, um, part of the, the way that he made his fame. Um, give, give us a little bit of insight of um, the links in which you went to trying to tell his story and um, the, the story of the smuggling ring with the, the different folks that you talked to that some listeners of our podcast might recognize even uh, as IndyCar fans. I mean, we tried to talk to as many people as possible, and it's challenging when you're trying to investigate someone's disappearance that was almost four decades ago. But in investigating the disappearance, like we talked to so many different people from the law enforcement side and prosecutors and the DEA and the FBI and all that. But it was important to us to make sure that we got a clear picture of who Mario Rossi was as like at the track, as a competitor and as a person. Um, so yeah, in addition to working very closely with his family, his two kids and his two sisters in particular, um, we spoke to people in NASCAR, people like, uh, Daryl Waltrip. And we did sit down with both of the Allison brothers, Bobby and Donnie, because they both, um, worked with Mario Rossi at a different time. Um, and so it's trying to tell a complete picture of who a person was especially from so many years ago is challenging. Um, other people we talked to, we talked to some people at the NASCAR hall of fame. Um, there's a Twitter, uh, NASCAR historian. He's known as NASCAR man on, uh, on Twitter. He's got a pretty big following and, and shares not just about NASCAR, about racing in general, shares a whole lot of, uh, historical fun facts. So we talked to, to him as well to try and really get as clear of a picture as we can about some man that we've obviously never met. You mentioned that the first episode um, also includes some short cameos from Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, Chase Elliott, uh, and Brad, as you mentioned, is the only um, modern or active driver uh, that you talked to that actually really knew who Mario Rossi was. Um, you, you've talked and, and hinted about how, how famous he was and how well-known he was in the 60s and 70s. Um, do you either, do you have anyone that you would be able to like compare his expertise and his fame and his success to, um, in like the, the modern NASCAR scene to give folks maybe an idea of the type of person that we're talking about? Um, you know, that's an, that's an interesting question. I think it's hard because comparing eras, it's often a little apples and oranges, um, but the person I kept thinking of, whether this is a fair comparison or not, I don't know. But as I learned more about Mario Rossi and his his innovation, his willing to take risks and, you know, challenge the status quo on things, um, you know, I kept thinking about Chad Knauss, uh, Jimmy Johnson's crew chief uh, for several years. They won seven championships together. Um, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily it, it, it's close comparison but that's who kept coming to mind when everyone would talk about how this this guy was changing the sport back in this in the 60s and 70s um i kept thinking about chad knaus and how he, he's had some you know revolutionary moments that obviously led to more championships than most people could ever dream of it's a great point it's 
amazing to think that someone, you know, whether that's a, a direct comparison or not, it's still amazing to think that someone at that level of respect and notoriety in the NASCAR community could just kind of <clears throat> just like fall off the map and disappear. And no one ever really, both no one ever really know what happened to him and um, that he's not a name that, uh, you know, that we hear about uh, or, or know a good amount about before you dove in into this, uh, this podcast. I, I have to admit, I'd never, um, heard his name before I, I saw that you guys were doing this podcast, but it's a super interesting story. Um, really hope you, you guys all, um, go give it a download. As you mentioned, um, tell us Michelle where, uh, where listeners or prospective listeners, uh, can download and listen to podcasts. Uh, season three of the sneak, it's called the disappearance of Mario Rossi. It's available anywhere you get your podcast. So that's Apple, Google, Spotify, you name it. It's there. Um, new episodes come out every Thursday. And so at this point, when we're recording this podcast so far, five episodes are out. There are eight total at the moment. Um, so five out three to go. And, uh, the sneak is available anywhere you get your podcast. Awesome. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Um, really appreciate your time. Um, really appreciate the effort that you took into um, diving into this story over the last several months to to give us um, something to listen to that you know is kind of um, really really different from from something that we see in the racing community from terms of podcasts. I'm I'm really excited to dive into it. Um, hope everyone else is, is really as well. Please go give that a download, um, and let us know what you think. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us today on IndyCar Weekly. Thank you so much for having me.